uh, one of the things that I'm pretty sure I've shared with you uh, a few times now is that when I turned 40, which seems like quite a while ago now, it's, it's been years already, I started caring about my health and my body. I think I read some articles that just really scared me. And so I've, I've been really active the last couple of years. I've done a lot of cycling. I've done a couple of rounds of P90X and things like that. I don't, I don't belong to a gym or anything. I just I do everything at home and keep it simple. But it's, it's really changed my lifestyle. Um, you know, I changed the way I eat and things like that. And I'm doing this, other, I'm doing this new program now. I've actually done it once before, but I'm doing it again. And it was, it's really fun. And um, in, in the trainer that, that run, does this program, you know, um, there's this phrase that he says over and over again. Whenever you get to a point when, when you need to lift more weight or just get that one last rep and you, you think it's going to be too hard, he always says the same thing. He says, whatever it takes. He actually says, whatever it takes! And he sounds, he's, he's actually Israeli. He has kind of a, that Eastern European, like almost like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of accent. And it just sticks with you. Like I hear it in my head day after day, whatever it takes. And I think what he means is that if you want to see change in your life, if you want to see real, you know, physical transformation, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. There's no other way that's going to happen. You have to be willing to push yourself. You have to be willing to go beyond what you think is possible. That's the only way that you're going to experience transformation. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes. And based on my calculations and, and looking at some photographs and estimating and stuff like that, I think that in about 60 days when I'm done with this program, I'm going to look something like this. <laughs> or close to that, you know. So I'm looking forward to that. I know you are too. Next slide, please, quickly. Um, <laughs> now we're going to go to the Word of God. Mark chapter 2, <laughs> beginning in verse 1 to 2. If you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to go there. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading a familiar story about Jesus. I know the kids are going to be listening intently after that great offer by Pastor Scott. And we're going to reflect afresh on what's a familiar story. We're going to take a little different angle on it today, I think. And this is what we read in Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and having dug through, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there themselves. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking those things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, 
I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And I, I love this next verse. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. What an amazing account. All three of the synoptic gospels include this account of Jesus' life on earth. Here we have a gathering of about maybe a hundred or possibly many more people inside and outside this small home. It's apparently the home that Jesus would spend time at when he was in his hometown, maybe to rest or recover, things like that. Jesus was always traveling. He lived a very stressful life. He was always surrounded by people. He walked miles and miles and miles every single day. And he, at this point, is home. He's at the place where he would call home. And he's preaching to this group of people, a crowd. He's preaching to a crowd. I'd like you to imagine that you are in the house listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden, you hear some commotion coming from outside the house, and what sounds like footsteps on the roof, and maybe some scratching and pounding, And then uh, suddenly mud and leaves and sticks start to fall down on your head. I mean, this was sort of a thatch roof. They had beams going across the the walls, and then they would just throw, uh, you know, grass and leaves and mud, and it was to form sort of a cement-like material. So these were temporary roofs that you could actually, if you had some tools, uh, make a hole in it. And these roofs were, were, were replaceable. People usually replace them once a year. But nobody would want you to make a hole in their roof. Uh, just like you wouldn't want someone to make a hole in your roof. And so there's these things falling down on people's heads, and suddenly a ray of sunlight comes through the roof, and it sort of brightens up the room a little bit. And the hole gets bigger, and the room gets brighter, and I'm certain that by now, you know, everyone's looking up, maybe with their hands over their eyes so they don't get debris in their eyes. And then a shadow appears as a large pallet or mat is slowly lowered from this hole in the roof. And imagine if you're the paralyzed guy. You can't see the floor. You can't see the people. You can't see Jesus. All you can see as you're looking up is your four friends looking down, you know, trying to keep the thing level and, okay, a little more there. Oh, wait, hold up, you know. I mean, that probably wasn't an easy task. It's probably not much easier. Maybe it's harder than, you know, Stan's uncles or, you know, hoisting up the trusses. No, kind of precarious. Something could go wrong there. But whatever sermon Jesus is preaching is now over. Don't you think? I'm pretty sure it was over. Because something truly amazing is about to happen. Now everyone in the room, uh, everyone there, they know, they know why, this, why this guy's there. They know why this paralyzed guy's there. He's not there for the sermon. He's not there to get some new insight and in how to live his life better. He's not there for the fellowship. He's not there to find a new girlfriend. He's there to get healed. And everyone there knows that except for Jesus, it would seem. Because Jesus takes this opportunity to do something I don't think anyone expected. Jesus sees their faith. Whose faith? Whose faith does Jesus see? It's the four guys that are lowering their friend. It's the four guys, right? He sees their faith. It took faith to do what they did. 
There's something unique about them. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend into the presence of God. It's their actions that Jesus sees. And he concludes based on their actions that these are men of great faith. And when Jesus sees what they're willing to do, he acts. He does something. He does the impossible. He forgives this man's sins. And there's a group of people who don't like that very much that are in this house. And they are the experts of the law, the scribes, the teachers of the law. These are the guys who everyone looks to for clarity about God. These are the guys who have to tell you how to have your sins forgiven. These are the, these are the experts on forgiveness and how to get it. And according to them, you had to go through a lot of steps to get forgiveness. You had to go to the temple. You had to carry a sacrifice. You usually had to, uh, to offer an animal sacrifice or something else, depending on how bad your sin was. You couldn't just hand out forgiveness to people. You couldn't just say, I'm sorry. You couldn't simply ask for forgiveness. You had to make a physical sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. It was costly. So, and, and these guys, you know, these experts on the law, they are sort of the stewards of forgiveness. They're, they're the ones that facilitate that whole process. So Jesus just come, just showing up and forgiving this man's sins completely really bothers them. And, and they start thinking to themselves, which, which we've talked about, you know, you, know, you should never think, think to yourself in Jesus' presence. You just shouldn't do that because we know that anytime anyone does that, Jesus points out what they're thinking and he confronts them, whether they're thinking out loud or not. And that's what happens here. And here's what these guys are thinking. How can one man forgive another man's sins completely? It would be like if I went up to Scott If Scott and Mark and I were here on the stage and I punched Scott in the gut and Mark said to to me, Dave, I forgive you. This doesn't make any sense. I didn't sin against Mark. I sinned against Scott. Scott has to give me forgiveness. But based on what Jesus does here, he's saying that everybody's sin is against him. That's what he's saying. And to the experts of the law, that's absurd. It's blasphemy because only God can do that. So the experts on God and the people listening in, they realize that by forgiving this man's sin, by declaring this man to be forgiven, Jesus is claiming to be God. We know that. He's claiming to be God. That's why he was crucified. And then it gets really interesting Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows their hearts. He says, which is easier, to forgive a person's sins or to say, get up, take your mat, and go home? And the answer, I think we know. It's it's actually easier to say, get up, take your mat, and go home. So Jesus, after dealing with this man's greatest need for his sin, he deals with his felt need, his physical need, which was paralysis. Now, normally we would focus on what Jesus does and how amazing it is. We, that's what we do every Sunday. But today we're going to focus on the four guys. We're going to look at what they did. And, and what we need to do as a church. That's what we're going to look at today. First of all, they faced an obstacle. They couldn't get their friend to Jesus. The crowd was too big. There was no room in the house. There's no way for them to get through the front door. But they felt a sense of urgency. They didn't, know if they, might, they, they didn't know if they would ever get another chance at this to get near to Jesus. They didn't know if they would ever have access to Jesus again or how much longer their friend might live. 
I think they might have thought, this is now or never. And because they believed that Jesus was the only one who could heal their friend, they're willing to take a huge risk and do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And like these four men, you and I, we all, we all have friends and family and, and co-workers who we want to bring to Jesus so that they can experience forgiveness and healing in life. Isn't that true? We all want that. We all, we all want that. But we are faced with some obstacles. And here's where I want to get really practical for us as a church. We are faced with some obstacles as a church. And I want to share a couple of those obstacles with you. We have what's called a reverse growth barrier. This auditorium is too big. People walk in here and it feels empty. You know, I mean, all the research we've done indicates that as long as we are gathering with under 300 people in this auditorium, we will struggle to grow. We will struggle to keep the people coming back who come, to come, who come here. We'd be better off in a smaller space. And some, someone might ask, well, why not just move to a smaller space in this building? Because that smaller space, the cafeteria, presents a whole other set of obstacles. Um, there are audio-video problems, setup problems, layout, pro- layout problems. There's, just, there's, there's obstacles no matter where we meet in this building. But the bigger problem is really this. The bigger problem, or obstacle I should say, is that we are right now renting from five different locations to, to, do, to function as a church, to do all the ministry that we do. We rent our offices and our, our high school student ministry. We rent space in Milwaukee by State Fair Park. That's where we're having the luncheon today. We use that for the luncheons and things like that for a lot of different things. We use that, that space in Milwaukee. It's about 2,000 square feet. For our Awana program on Friday nights, 100, 150 kids come on a weekly basis. We're, using a, uh, we're renting a church in Greenfield. We've been doing that for years. Um, for Time Out for Moms, our, our thriving moms ministry, we're renting another church in West Dallas, right up on 84th by Beloit. For our baptism services, we're using Faith Bible Church in Greenfield. For, um, and then for pretty much everything else, we use West Dallas Central. And, and so we're, we're using all of these different spaces, and, you know, don't, you know, and then there's the parking. You know, the parking, we have, we have quite a few members of our, our congregation that we don't really want to be walking blocks on a Sunday morning to get, to get into the front door. And so it's not ideal, and here's the point. People are always going to have a harder time connecting with us and ultimately with Jesus as long as all those ministries are miles apart. That's the obstacle that we're facing right now. And all the time and effort that you put into setting up and breaking down and plugging in And moving things around every single week is time and energy that we could be investing into people. Isn't it? I mean, once we we are, Lord willing, established in a permanent location, we'll have more time and energy to invest in the people around us who are far from God, and as well as the people who gather with us on Sundays. That's the goal. We want to to get that that time and and that energy and those resources back to be able to invest into people. Number two, we feel a sense of urgency. We feel a sense of urgency. 
West Dallas is 100% urban. It's landlocked. And we have an opportunity right now to acquire a suitable building in an, in an awesome location that will allow us to consolidate all of our ministries. It will allow us to take volunteers who are doing weekly setup and tear down and mobilize them and equip them for service in the city, ultimately reaching and helping more people. And that's what this is about. It's about people. This is all about people. It's not, this is not really about a building. And you know that if you've been coming to Crosspoint for any length of time, you know that we exist for people. We exist for God's glory, and the way that we experience God's glory is by being Jesus to people. This is not about a building. The church is not, is not where we meet, it's where we live. The church is not a place. It's people. It's about what happens when we leave here, when we scatter. It's about being sent to people who are far from God and sharing God's love with them and, and telling them the good news that Jesus Christ has done everything possible for us to have peace with God and to come into the presence of God and to experience God in our lives. Because of the cross. That's why we do everything we do in the community. That's why we send volunteers into the city virtually every month to do things in the community, to serve people, to help people, to love people. That's why we're here. It's about people. And re- recent census data shows that there are over one million people in our three-county area who are unchurched. In other words, they are not connected to a church. Many of those people are not following God, have no relationship with God, have no intentions of ever going back to church. Think about all the people that you know on your street, in your neighborhood, at your kid's school, at your workplace, who need peace with God, who need forgiveness. This is about them. We want to give them access to us and access to Christ. Not that we give them access, right? But we want, we want them to see what gospel community looks like and feels like and to experience, it them, to experience it for themselves. That's what we want. That's what God wants. We're ready to act in faith. We're ready to act in faith. There are no guarantees. I mean, there are definitely some uncertainties. We, we, um, we know that God is, control. We, God is in control. We know that we, we don't have to worry about what we can't control. We're simply called to exercise faith in God. That's what we're called to do as his people. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I have concerns about this whole process, about what it's going to cost, you know, about what it's really going to take for us to, to do this build out and to finish what, we, what we're about to start. And, I mean, we've been in a position sort of like this before, and the rug was pulled out from under us, you know. It's happened before. And there's a lot that I don't know. But what I do know is this, that we cannot let our past disappointments keep us from pursuing God's best future for us right now. We just can't. We cannot let our past Keep us from trusting God now. And I also know that we will not get to where we need to be as a church without faith. It's just not going to happen. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen because we did it together in faith. Faith is going to be the key. Faith is going to get us there. In Hebrews 11.6, 
we read that with, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's time for us to earnestly seek God together. It's time to break a hole in the roof. Do you hear me? It's time to break a hole in the roof. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to take a couple of weeks, as Dave and Stan alluded to, in two weeks we're having a family meeting, and we're going to take a couple of weeks to pray and to fast together. And we're going to be uh, praying daily about what God would have us do as individual households. We're going to fast together on a couple different days, and I'm going to communicate uh, that with you via the lifeline very soon. We're going to raise $150,000. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It's a lot for a church that has about 80 giving units. That's a lot. But that's what we're going to do, and hopefully more. And we don't have to raise it right away, but we do have to come up with that in order to finish what we're about to start. That's the reality. We're also going to commit ourselves to giving our time and talents. And then when we come back together on February 14th, we're going to... We're going to ask you for a response because we, we have to, as, as a leadership team, we, we sort of have to take the temperature of the church. We have to know, we have to have an idea of, of where we're at and where we're willing to go before we take this next big step forward. And finally, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're willing to do whatever it takes. And as I said before, I, I know that we've, you know, we've been in a position before in the past where we sort of ran ahead of God and, and Things didn't work out the way we thought they would. But God has been faithful to us. He has, he has protected us. He's strengthened us. He has brought us to this place to be the church and to help people find their way back to God. And while some of you might be thinking, maybe, is this too much too soon? Is this going to be too hard? What if this happens? What if that happens? Here's what I want to say. I would rather fail a dozen times at trying to do something audacious in order to bring more and more people into the presence of Jesus than to succeed at doing nothing to bring more and more people into the presence of Jesus. That's where I'm at. And I think that's where you guys are at too. We're on the roof. We're in a position to make a breakthrough, but we have to be willing to work together. We have to be willing to do whatever it takes. We're not driven by a building. We're not driven by growth. A building is a tool. You know that. A building is a tool that God can use. We're not driven by personalities. We're not driven by preferences. We're driven by a desire to see more and more people find life in Jesus Christ, our King. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to give them that opportunity. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the privilege it, it is to meet in this public high school and the, the great relationship you've given us with the administration and the, and the faculty and some of the students. We thank you, God, so much for what you're doing here. We pray that you would continue to bless this high school. We pray that you would continue to give us opportunities to bless this school, to bless this city, to bless the the communities around us. We pray that you continue to send us to people who are far from you to show them your love and your grace and to tell them who you really are. 
We pray, God, that you would move in our church and that you would take us where you want us to be. Help us, God, to think the way that you think and to love the way that you love, to be willing to go wherever you want to lead us and to submit to you at every point along the way. We pray, God, that you would use us to do great things in your name for your kingdom, that more and more people would find grace and mercy and joy in your presence, Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.